We're in part four of advancing your career. Today we're talking about coping with cranky co-workers because one of the number one things that make people not want to work someplace are the people there. You know, if you don't have chemistry with the people there, it can be a miserable experience at work. In Romans 12, 18, it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, it might not be possible, but you're going to do your part is what that means. You know, I'm going to do my part if it's possible. There's a book called Never Work for a Jerk <laughs> by Patricia King. And she talks about this uh, lady named Marilyn who's working for this boss. And the boss had no sense of like, hey, she's at home now. She's not on the clock. And it wouldn't matter what was going on in the middle of um, dinner. She gets a phone call and he says, I need you to dictate this for me right now. And, you know, and he expected her to do it. I'm at home with my family. I'm not at work right now. You know, we're having dinner. And he was, you know, she was afraid not to do it because she thought she'd lose her job. And one day, she's driving home from work, and it's a dark day, and she sees this guy, this uh, person in a car driving crazy behind her, and comes around and forces her off the road, and she was scared to death, like, what's going on? And it was him. He rolls down his window, hey, I need you to do this for work. And it's just overbearing, you know, so uh, that's part of what's in that book, you know, giving examples of real things that happened with Patricia King, never worked for a jerk. But... Sometimes it's at the workplace, you're dealing with people that are out of control. You're dealing with people that have no sense of respect for your time off. This is your home time. And uh, how do you deal with this stuff in, in the way that God would want you to deal with it? Uh, this creates all kinds of job stress in our life. We're going to look at six principles of how God wants you to deal with people at work. But before that, I want to talk about the types of difficult pe people that are out there. First of all, in your notes, you can fill it in. You have demanding people. Those are those dictators of life. They're like the little Napoleons at work that are very controlling. They're intimidating. They try to dominate everybody. They want to control your life. They're oppressive, rude. They have unrealistic demands. Very demanding people. But that's part of the... Sometimes that's the person at work that's making your life miserable. You also sometimes find yourself at work with dishonest people. You're working and they're like the snake in the grass. You know, they lie, they cheat, there's no integrity. They promise one thing but deliver something else. They'll stab you in the back, they'll betray you. You can't trust them. And it can make life miserable if this is the type of person that you happen to work with. There's disagreeable people. It's very difficult to have to go to work with a chronic complainer. You know, they're always negative, always grumpy, always grouchy. Nothing's good. They always find a reason to complain. They love to argue. They're mad at the world. They blow up. They're not a team player. They don't cooperate. They're disagreeable. That's a hard person to work with. That's how some people are at the workplace. A fourth type of person that makes it really hard at work is defensive people. They're touchy. They're thin-skinned. They take offense to everything you feel like. You have to walk on eggshells around them because you're going to offend them by what you say, by what you do. They're always getting their feelings hurt. And you can't be comfortable at your work setting. You're always on guard of, uh-oh, I don't want to say it wrong. I don't want to hurt their feelings. And it's really miserable to have to deal with that, you know, at work all the time. 
Maybe that's the person that you have to deal with. Or the demeaning pe- uh, person. Uh, maybe at your work, there's people there that are always putting you down. They're always insulting you. They're very disrespectful. Because of their insecurity, they build their security by putting everybody else down. You know, by degrading everybody else by the things they say. Uh, they, they tear you down because in their own mind, somehow it builds them up. But it's miserable to have to work with that type of person. And sometimes you have, if it's a big company, you have all five of those things going on. There's going to be somebody like this, somebody like that, somebody like this. And it's really hard. So, we're Christians. We're in the workplace. How do we respond? Because I want to enjoy my job. I want to like work. But sometimes at work you can't avoid some of these people. So how do we get along? How can we deal with it in a way that I can still have a good experience at work? Because you want to have a good experience at work. You know, 40 hours a week, probably you're there at least. And that's a lot of time. You don't want to be miserable. So how do we deal with difficult people? Number one, realize you can't please everybody. Just know that from the beginning. You can't please everybody. It's like the verse earlier. I have part of that verse in there. As far as it depends on you. What's meant, you do your part, but it still doesn't mean that they're going to come around. Some people are just unpleasable. No matter how nice you are to them, some people are going to still be rude. No matter what you do to try to make the atmosphere better, some people aren't going to change. They're just not going to change. And that's okay. That's their problem. That's who they are. If your goal is to change them, you've got the wrong goal. Because if my goal is to change that person, then their decision whether or not to change or not totally affects whether I'm happy or not. My goal is to do my part. As far as it depends on me, I'm going to try to make things right. But if they don't respond, that's on them. I can't make everybody happy. I can't make everybody change. I can't please everybody. In Proverbs, it says, 29, 25, it's dangerous to be concerned with what other people think of you. It becomes an emotional trap when we worry about what does everybody else think. You can't please everybody. God can't please everybody. God, in general, makes half the people angry. You pray for rain, and probably about half of the people are praying for it not to rain. You pray for the Dodgers to win, probably half the people are praying that they lose. God can't make everybody happy. I'm a fool if I think it's my job to make everybody happy. I can't. I can't make everybody happy with me. And if my feeling of myself is only good when these people treat me nice and when these people respond to me in the way that I think they should, then I'm going to be miserable. I give them total control of my life. And the whole feeling about myself is dependent on them. We sometimes do this with parents. You know, that unpleasable parent that you're trying to do, you know, you're doing everything you can to prove to them that you've made it, that you've done this and you've done that. And some of them are still going to be unpleasable. And that's who they are. And if you're living your life to please them, you're going to be miserable. Because if you haven't been able to please them by now, it's probably not going to happen. It's just probably not going to happen. Because it's something that they have going on with them. Jesus said this in John 5, 29. I only seek to please him who sent me. 
And that's where it is. I only seek to please him who sent me. So live for an audience of one. If I try to please you, then everybody over here gets upset. So I try to go over here and please you, then everybody here gets upset. You see what I mean? So what's my goal? I can't have a goal that I'm going to make everybody happy. I've got to get that out of my mind. I can only make one person happy. God, okay, I'm going to make this goal. I'm committing to making you happy. And you know what? When you do that, some people are going to like you for that and some aren't. But you're reaching your goal. That's who you're focused on. Is, is God happy? Is God happy with what I'm doing? In Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Isn't that interesting? Woe to you when all men speak well to you. This is Jesus. Why would he say that? Why would he say, watch out. Watch out, guys. If everybody's saying good things about you, watch out. Why? Where's the one place that everybody says good things about you? The funeral. You're dead. When else does everybody say? Any other time, somebody's going to say something rotten about you, right? So watch out. Woe to you. The truth is, if you're being a people pleaser, you're probably not pleasing God. If you're being a people pleaser, you're probably not pleasing God. So what he's saying is, focus on pleasing God. Focus on, I only seek to please him who sent me. Focus on him, and then you do the right thing. Focus on pleasing people. You might be on the wrong path. Even if you have the majority of people behind you, if you have the majority of people behind you, you're probably on the wrong path. Uh, uh, it seems like so many times the majority are wrong. Number two, refuse to retaliate. Refuse to retaliate. That's the second thing you want to do at work. If you want a peaceful environment, if you want to enjoy your job, you have to refuse to retaliate. What do I want to do when somebody insults me? I want to insult them back. I do. You know, everything in me wants to get even with them. I don't know if you feel that way, but that's exactly how I feel. But 1 Peter 3, 9 says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. So if I want to have a good work environment, when someone insults me, just let it go. Who cares what they say? Why, why do I want to fight them? Why do I want to make this into a big thing? You know, you're going to get insulted in life. Who cares? Do your job. You don't want to be in fights all the time. In Proverbs 12, 16, it says, When a fool is annoyed, he quickly lets it be known. Do you know people like that? That quickly, every time they're annoyed, they let everybody know about it. The Bible says, when a fool is annoyed, they do that. I don't want to be a fool. It says smart people will ignore an insult. That's what I want to be. I think a better way than saying smart people, because this is um, the good news translation and it's really written kind of for middle school age, high school age kids. You know, that's what that version was geared toward. But I, I think uh, a better translation would probably say mature people. If we were to translate it into what it means in our minds, mature people ignore an insult. If you're spiritually mature, you just kind of ignore that. Okay, I'm just going to ignore that. I'm not going to make a big deal out of that. It's not going to ruin my day. I'm not allowing them to have that much power over my life that what they say ruins my day. Who made them the God of your life? Well, what they say affects you so much. Just let it go. But a fool, when he's annoyed, he's quick to make it known. I don't want to be the fool. In Proverbs 21, 23, it says, if you want to stay out of trouble, be careful what you say. 
It's learning how to control your own tongue and think about what you're saying. Think before you speak. Because what happens is you'll speak and you'll say things that you regret later, even though they started it. He insults me, so I insult him back. It was so funny. Uh, we were at a wrestling match a couple weeks ago, and one girl that is, we have a girls team, and the girls were wrestling here, and in this match, the girl on the other team insulted the girl on my team when they were off the mat, and the referee was already walking back. So when they're walking back, right in front of the referee, my girl insults her back. One team point <laughs> taken away. I'm saying, what are you doing? Well, she's, you know, you, you know how it is in school, a uh, kid hits you and you hit him back. Who does the teacher see? They always see the guy that hits him back. It, it's that type of thing. They insult you and then you insult them back. And who does the t teacher hear? The one that insults it back. The first one, you know, usually when you fight back, it, it's for your own harm. You're fighting back to get even with them, but usually it backfires on you. Because people didn't see the first half. What they saw is the response. And you go away looking like the bad person. You're the, and you're thinking, when they started it, they started it. But nobody saw that. So there's so many times that we're standing up for ourselves when it's things that we don't have to. An insult just isn't worth it. Number three, refuse to argue. Refuse to argue. Don't be drawn into arguments. You'll notice the Pharisees with Jesus, they were constantly throwing out things to try to bring him into an argument, to try to bring him into a situation where he would say something out of anger or out of emotion that would make him look bad. And if you get people to say something out of anger or emotion, it can make them look bad. You know, they'll say the wrong things. Matthew in 22, uh, records Jesus saying this. The Pharisees went off and made a plan to trap Jesus with questions. Jesus was aware of their intent, however, so he said, why are you trying to trap me? He wouldn't allow them in. He wouldn't play their game. He just called it. He's basically saying, I know what you're trying to do, and you're trying to trick me. You're trying to get me to say something so that you can use it against me later on. I'm not going to play that game. I know what you're doing. He called, their, he called their game. He knew what they were doing. He did not allow them to pull him in to the fight or pull him into the argument or pull him in where his emotions would be involved. And what happens? You say something that you regret. Have you ever in a, in a marriage situation or in a boyfriend-girlfriend situation where your emotions get pulled in and you say something that you regret? And then later on you say, oh, I wish I didn't say that. And it causes damage, maybe for a long time. Haven't we done that before? Our emotion gets pulled in. Well, he, he was stopping that. How much more so we, we, you know, we want to stop that at work, at our marriage and everything. We don't want to be pulled in where we end up saying something that we regret. Proverbs 26, 21 says, wood keeps a fire burning and troublemakers keep arguments alive. It's saying the troublemaker is a guy that keeps adding, you know, fuel to the fire. They just keep it going, keep it going. It's saying, we don't want that. We don't want to do that. We want to be peacemakers. We want to be the type of people that, that make things better, not adding fuel to the fire to make things worse. If you're a boss 
and you have a person that does things like that, for the sake of the morale of your company, it's better to fire them. It's better to fire them. Now, let me explain what I mean. Who's a troublemaker at work? It's very important that we understand what this means. The troublemaker at work is not the person, let's say that you're the boss. The troublemaker at work is not the person that stands up to you as a boss because they feel like a decision that you made is unfair to the workers. That's not a troublemaker. That might be a guy, that might be the man or the woman in your company that has the most morals of everybody. We get it mixed up sometimes. Bosses get this mixed up. The troublemaker is not the person that stands up to you and says, this is bad for the employees. If you cut this benefit, we're having a hard time making it. How do you expect this to, you know, whatever. But they're, they're making a stand for, uh, that's not a troublemaker. That's somebody with a conscience. A troublemaker is someone that stirs up fights amongst the people. Like uh, when they're a, a part of the, the work company, because of them, this girl and that girl don't like each other anymore because of things they've said about, yeah, she told me this, she don't, you know. Troublemakers make the morale of the company divisive within the company. That's a troublemaker. There's someone, the Bible says this about pastors. It says if you're pastoring a church and you have someone causing division in the church, like dividing the people against each other, if you have a division maker, it says warn them once. This is what it tells you to do in a church. A lot of people say, in a church, you're supposed to do this? He said, warn them once, warn them a second time. After that, give them the boot. You're out of here. You're supposed to kick people out of the church? Yes. If they're causing division. If they're ruining the church, you get rid of them. Well, I, I think if God tells pastors to do that, I think it's the same thing for bosses at work. If they're ruining, if they're causing division with the people, they're the troublemaker, get them out. Because then the people that you really like there won't want to work there anymore, and they'll start looking for other jobs. When you let it fester, and same, look at a church. Let's say that there's somebody that's a divisive troublemaker in the church, and you don't do anything about it. People like me and you that want to enjoy our time here, after a while it gets so frustrating. Doesn't it kind of make you think, oh, I love this church, but I'm going to look somewhere else because I can't deal with this division. It makes you want to leave. And what would happen is we would lose all the good people because we're protecting the troublemaker. It would be the most idiotic thing to ever do. That's why God tells you if they're the troublemaker, get rid of them. Well, the same thing at, at your work. If you let the troublemaker go on, you're going to lose your good employees, the people that you do like there because they're good people. Get rid of the troublemaker. It does two things. It saves the business that you have. And it gives that person a chance to change. Because here's what happens. I'm a troublemaker and I lose my job. Maybe in the next job, I'm going to think twice about what I do. I can't have you here. I've had her do this um, with a wrestling coach once. Where the coach was uh, causing division amongst the other coaches. And I had to get rid of them because I didn't want to lose the coaches that weren't causing division. And I could see what was going to happen. It's very difficult because I liked him. But he was the troublemaker. He was the one causing division. And for the sake of the team, you let him go. And you know what happened when I got rid of him? Two things happened. The coaches I had, the, the morale came back and everybody's happy again. And the team's great and everything went on great. And this guy had a wake-up call. This guy learned like, hmm, 
Maybe I need to be more sensitive. Maybe I need to be, understand the consequences of my action. He probably needed to be in a situation where that happened a long time before, but no one ever did it. And maybe he would have corrected that behavior way back then instead of more recently. Look at Proverbs 22.10. Throw out the mocker and you will be rid of tension, fighting, and quarrels. It's true. It's saying, get rid of the troublemaker and the troubles go away. That's all it's saying. So at work, sometimes that's the, what you have to do. Number four, refuse to cave in. Because some of the things I'm saying when I say, if they insult you, just let it go. But I'm not saying you cave into everything. You don't want to cave into everything. So refuse to cave in. What that means is people think that Christians are supposed to submit, you know, to everything. Like they hit you on one cheek, so you turn the other cheek. They ask for your cloak, so you give them this as well. Okay, the point behind that passage is you bend over showing love for people. You, you do whatever you can to go the extra mile to show them love. But there are times that you have to stand up as well for what's right. The Bible never teaches Christians to not be a voice for justice. He actually tells you protect the widow and the orphan. Well, what does that mean in those days? Those are the people that couldn't protect themselves. Can orphans protect themselves? In those days, the widow couldn't protect herself. She had no power. So it's saying to the people of God, you protect them. You be their voice. You stand up. For, and it says you fight for them. It doesn't mean that you have to get guns out and shoot each other, but it's saying you're fighting for their cause. So at the same time, someone insults me, I just let it go. But I see children, for example, that have no voice being mistreated, and I fight for their cause. Can you see how you insult me, and I don't worry about this is something different. I'm going to protect the innocent. I'm going to fight for those that don't have a voice, that type of thing. So that's how we are as Christians. We're not a doormat. We just pick and choose what we're willing to fight for. Romans 12, 2, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world squeeze you and pressure you into something that's not right. If the world's trying to squeeze you into something that you know is wrong, that's where you have to stand up. You have to say, no, 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 no. I will not do this. If a boss is trying to squeeze you into doing something that you know is not ethical, you have to say no. You have to say no. Just like if a coworker is trying to squeeze you into, hey, work together with me and we can steal this much money from the boss. You'd say no, right? I'm not going to work together with you and steal this much money from the boss. Well, why if a boss said to you, hey, work together and we'll do our taxes like this and we'll steal this much money from the government? You know, I know people that would never work together with this guy to steal money from the boss, but, hey, do this for me, sign this, and make it look like this so we can steal money from the government. Okay. Isn't it the same thing? It's all about stealing money, right? It's all about breaking the law. So don't let the world squeeze you into doing anything because being a Christian doesn't mean being a wimp. You're still a strong person, you, you let things go. It actually takes more strength to let an insult go. Because I know, someone insults me, everything in me wants to insult them back. I, I, I'm driven to insult them back. 
It takes uh, so much strength for me to hold my tongue and just let it go. Uh, it's not important. Let me just let it go. It takes no strength to insult them back. That's easy. In fact, they insult me here, so I want to insult them here. You know, let me really get them. You know, because that's what I desire. You desire to fight back. I desire to fight back. So it takes a lot of strength. Don't think that the weak person is the one that uh, doesn't fight back. That's a strong person. That's what's really hard to do. So you're not a doormat. You're not a wimp. And you're willing to stand up for what's right. Some people say, well, aren't Christians meek? Well, the word is meek, not weak. And there's a big difference. The word meekness means strength under control. Like if you have an, a wild horse and you tame it, that horse is just as strong as it was before, but now it's under control. Sometimes our emotions, our tongue, whatever is wild, it's out of control, and we've learned to tame it. But we're just as strong as we were to, before, but now it's under control. And that's what meekness means. There's only two times in the Bible that it calls somebody meek. Jesus and Moses. It's never called a specific person meek other than those two. And neither of them were weak because Jesus was combating against the, the religious leaders and the, the leaders of Israel. He wasn't afraid to combat them on what they were doing wrong. This is wrong. This is unjust. And that's why they killed him because he wasn't afraid to fight the fight. He wasn't afraid to stand up for those that didn't have anybody stand up for them, the poor. He said so much about the poor. More, he talked more about the poor than like anything else that you can find. You know, he, he was standing up for the people that needed to be stood up to. Moses stood up to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world, and he stood up to Pharaoh. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid. I don't know if he was afraid to or not, but he did it. He stood up to Pharaoh. So meekness doesn't mean weakness, but it does mean have a, that, that, that sense of humility, that you're a humble person, that you're not easily insulted. But you'll be strong when you need to be strong. And that's the godly way. In Matthew 5, 36, it says, All you need to say is yes if you mean yes, and no if you mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. So when someone wants you to do something at work that you know isn't right or ethical, it's just saying, just say no. Remember Nancy Reagan way back when it came to drugs, and she said, just say no. You know, but there's something to that. Just, just say no. If we don't teach our kids to say no, Maybe they will be on drugs. But one of the ways that we teach our kids to stand up and have conviction is we stand up and have conviction. If I'm someone that has convictions about certain things and I learn to vocalize it with my children and they see dad's got strength here, I think it helps them to have strength there or mom's got strength there. I think it influences them to have strength there because they see that example in the home. For example, if you don't smoke your kids are less likely to smoke. If you don't drink, your kids are less likely to drink. You know, if, if you don't, but if they see you doing these things in the house all the time, if you don't use bad language, your kids are less likely to use bad language. If they don't hear it in the home, they're less likely to do it somewhere else. The influence of the home is the number one influence. But if I have a filthy mouth at home, my kids, even if I tell them not to, are more likely to have a filthy mouth when they're not in the house. If I'm uh, drinking too much, they're more likely to turn to alcohol because they see it. it's an influence. But if you have conviction, they tend to have conviction. So you want to be that example in the home. You want them to be able to look at you 
and have an example. This is what it means to have conviction. This is the direction I want to go in. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be someone that has enough conviction to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Don't give in and go with the crowd just because of the pressure that you might have at work. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For the spirit that God has given us does not make us timid. So being a Christian doesn't mean that you're a timid person. It says, in fact, the spirit fills us with power, love, and self-control. So power, I can relate that to confidence. The confidence you have because you believe God's with you. Love is you're focusing on their needs. Self-control. A lot of this is controlling your tongue. It's about self-control. That's what he does. But it's not about being timid. The Christian isn't the timid person that says, yes, sir, I'll just do whatever you say. No. The Christian might be the one standing up strong for justice when nobody else is willing to. That takes a lot of strength. You know, we see this. The two people that I think of the most or the three people that I think of the most are Gandhi in our times, like in these recent times, Martin Luther King Jr., and uh, Mandela, they're great examples for us of people that were willing to make a stand for right, even though, you know, it cost, well, it cost uh, Gandhi pretty much his life and Martin Luther King Jr. Mandela, it didn't cost him his life, but it cost him his life in prison. You know, he ends up becoming president. Isn't that a great story? I mean, I just love the story of his life and what happened. But we have examples of people that are willing to make a stand. And in all three examples, even the ones where people were, they were killed, still society changed because of them. It was like they sacrificed their life, in a sense, so that everybody else has a, ste- a major step in a better direction than what it was before. It's pretty amazing what can happen when one person decides to say, I'm going to make a stand. And they do it the godly way. They do it the godly way. Look at number five. Resolve conflict quickly. Don't let it go on and on. Because if you allow conflict to continue on, it festers and then people get bitter and then the problem's worse. I have this tendency. There's conflict. I just want to sweep it on the carpet and just say, you know, if I don't say anything, then maybe it would just go away. And it never works. It just gets worse. I've learned from experience. The best thing to do is to deal with it and talk with it and say, hey, guys, we need to talk. We need to work this out. In Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, it says, If you become angry, do not let your anger lead you into sin. And do not stay angry all day. Don't give the devil a chance. Do you notice what this verse says? It never says that being angry is wrong. It says, it says don't let it lead you into sin. You know why? There are some things that you should be angry about. There are some things that if you're not angry about what's happening in in certain situations, there might be something wrong with you. When I hear of child abuse, I get angry. I get angry. If if child abuse doesn't anger you, what's wrong? Come on, it's got to anger you. if, If you have any sense of love in your heart, you get angry about any kind of abuse because you love. You can't have love without anger. Because if you love people, you're going to be angry when you see abuse toward innocent people. If you don't love people, you don't care about the abuse, and you go on. But, you know, that's, that's like more than just giving the devil a chance. That's like being on his team altogether. 
So there's a right way to be angry and there's a wrong way to be angry. But if you don't deal with the anger, it will turn into resentment and bitterness. And in the Bible, resentment and bitterness are always wrong. There's never one time in the Bible where bitterness was good. There's not one time in the Bible where resentment was good. They were always a sin. Anger is not a sin, but it's a guarantee if you don't deal with it, it turns into resentment, which is always a sin. It turns into bitterness, which is always a sin. So the idea is when you have anger, deal with it. Work out the problem. If you're in a marriage, like it says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. If you're in a marriage and you're angry with one another, the idea behind that is deal with it as soon as you possibly can. Why? Because if you don't, it starts turning into bitterness. It starts turning into resentment. And then it's really bad. And it's a sin. Your anger can start off righteous. This is wrong. This has to be dealt with. And it can be 100% right. But because you don't deal with it, it turns into bitterness and resentment. And now it's 100% wrong. Even though it started off right. But if you deal with it, you get angry. So this has to be dealt with. So you work it out with your spouse. So you work it out at work. Now it's been resolved, and the whole point is to get it resolved. Why? So that the anger doesn't continue, so that the workplace becomes a better place, or the home environment becomes a better place. So anger is not a sin, but it can become a sin if you don't deal with it. A lot of stress at work is conflict that's never been dealt with. They've never worked it out. You have to be someone that cares enough to confront the situation. I like to use, because to confront sounds like a fight, I, I like to use the word care front. Care front the situation. Like, there's a situation here that needs to be dealt with. And let me tell you what. Is there, don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but is there anybody that loves to confront? I hate confronting. It stresses me out all day that I have to go, oh, I've got to confront. Oh. I, you know, I hate those confrontations. But one thing that does help me is in my mind, I, I approach it like this. I'm not going to confront them. I'm going to care front them. I'm going to care enough to talk with them about the situation so that we can work it out and make it good. Because I have to get it in my mind that it's not a confrontation. It's a care-frontation. If I think of confrontation, I want to go in there and I say, you did this and you did that. If I think of confronting somebody. But if I think of care-fronting, I approach it different. I care enough about us and the relationship and the situation to talk about this to make things better. So that's how it helps me mentally is to approach it in this way. And here's how James says. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I like this because if I do the first one, if I'm quick to listen, I'll probably hear where they're coming from and understand them more, which makes me slow to become angry. So be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry. So I want to hear what they are. I want to understand them. So when I do speak, I've had a chance to think it through. There's a lot of wisdom there in James 1.19. Do the first one and the next two are kind of come easier and more natural. And you're going to find out that a lot of the people that are the problem people is when someone's hurt, they tend to hurt others. So when you listen to them, you'll understand their hurts. And it makes you have a better picture of why they respond like they do. When I understand how this person's been hurt in the past, I understand why they're this way. It doesn't mean that you don't confront it or care front it, but you care front a lot easier if you understand why they act that way, if you understand their background, if you understand their hurts, 
And number six is respond with love. In spite of their behavior, in spite of their attitude, be loving. Why? Because God loves them. Sometimes you feel like, how could God love that jerk? <laughs> and the funny thing is, God loves them as much as he loves you. And in fact, he wants you to love them. And I see it because of having kids. I can see if one of my kids is being a jerk to one of the other kids, I see the other kid getting mad, my children. I could see one child being mad at the other one because he was being a jerk to him. But I love the kid that's being a jerk, which he was, as much as I love the kid that he was being a jerk to. And I want the kid that he was being a jerk to to still love his brother or sister as much as I do. But it doesn't mean that I'm not going to address that kid. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be some discipline involved. But I understand God's point of view. Of course he wants me to love that person. Because God would love that person just as much as he loves me. Because he's our Heavenly Father. And as a father, I can see that. Yes, he was being a jerk, but I love him just as much as I love him. It doesn't change. It doesn't mean that I don't love my child anymore. So we want to have that love for people. But love doesn't mean that you necessarily just go along with what they're doing. Love means sometimes you have to be tough and you have to confront them and say, this is not going to happen. In Matthew 5, it says, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you. That gives us four ways of handling difficult people. Love them, bless them, do good to them, pray for them. That's hard to do, but I find if I kind of reverse the order a little bit and I take that one, pray for them, and if I start there, if you're praying for someone, it becomes much easier to start loving them. If you're praying for that person, it becomes much easier to do good to them. If you're praying for that person, it's much easier to bless them. So when you have these people at work that just, just bother you and irritate you and you're just so fed up with them, well, start by praying for them. I really believe if you pray for them, what happens is that person that might not change, but what happens, prayer changes me. I'm praying for them. God changed them. You know, God, you know, do this to them and whatever. And the more I'm praying for them every day, the more that God starts changing me. And that person maybe doesn't change, but my approach to them changes. My attitude changes for them. My love for them changes. I really believe it starts with prayer because prayer is what is you allowing Jesus to really start working in your life, even though sometimes you're praying for God to change them. And irritable, peop irritable people, they're such a great test for us. They are. Because I'm going to tell you, sometimes I feel like I'm pretty Christian. When I say Christian, like, you know, like Jesus would be. I, sometimes I feel like I'm pretty Christian because things are probably going well, you know. But remember when you squeeze a tooth, you know, toothpaste tube, what comes out? Well, what's ever inside? If you have toothpaste inside, that's what's going to come out. Irritated people, it's like they squeeze you and what comes out. And sometimes I think I'm a loving person and then these irritated people squeeze me and love's not what comes out. And I'm you know what comes out? Exactly what's inside. Exactly what's inside. A lot of times we think we're loving people until we get squeezed. Irritating people are great for us. It reveals to us what's on the inside. 
Like, I think I'm pretty loving, and then all of a sudden I think, well, if I'm so loving, then why is all this anger coming out and this, you know, why do I react like this? Because love's inside. That's what's going to come out when you're squeezed. If caring about people is inside, that's what's going to come out when you're squeezed. You know, if whatever's inside, if anger's inside, if I'm an angry person, when I get squeezed, I'm going to, anger's going to come out. I guess I'm asking you what's inside your toothpaste tube. You know, what's inside there? I want mine to be filled with love. But those people are very important to us because on our journey to walk with God, we need those reminders that kind of give us a real, realistic view of where we are. And we realize, oh, I'm really over here. But I want to get over there. Because I've learned this. No matter how much time I've studied the Bible, no matter how many memory verses, you know, how many verses of the Bible I've, I've memorized, and no, matter, and, and no matter how committed I am to church, if it doesn't affect that I, the way I treat people, it was a waste. What good is it for me to study the Bible and memorize verses, love your neighbor as yourself, if it's not really a part of my life? It's a waste. So what's it really all about? Why do I study the Bible? Hopefully to change my character. Why do I memorize those verses? Hopefully to change my character. Why do I go to church? Hopefully to change my character. That's what it's about. I want it, I want it to change my character so it, so it affects the way I treat you or other people in the world. That's what it's really about. That's what God's call is for our life. In Proverbs 16, 7, it says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord... He makes even his enemies live at peace with him. So how can I be pleasing to the Lord? Do these things. Practice these six things I shared. You're going to be pleasing to the Lord. And it says this, even his enemies live at peace with him. If your enemies are not living at peace with you, look down this distance, see if there's any of these things that you can change. Maybe there's things I can change here. Maybe I'm not doing this. Maybe I'm not. And do your part. Do anything that you can to do your part. Because I think God's working a miracle in their life through that. God's using you to start working on their heart. It's like the Spirit of God's going through your love in order to change that person's heart. That hurt person that's gone through something that's got them on this road that's not right. And your love for them, God's using that. So I, I, I do believe that that's a great verse to hang on to if you're in that situation where you've got this enemy. Do the principles of God and let God do his work in their life. With that, let's pray. Father, help us to realize that we can't please everybody. You know, you can't make everybody happy, God, so help us not to think that we can. Lord, help us not to retaliate or insult back or to try to get even. Help us to guard our mouths, be careful what we say so we don't get drawn into arguments things that are just going to make things worse. But help us to stand up, Lord, to the things that we need to stand up to so that we can be people that really represent you in the right way. And ultimately, Lord, help us to love people. Lord, at work, sometimes we're in these situations where the people that we work with are difficult. And it's hard. But Lord, we want to have the best work experience that we can. We spend so much time there. So Lord, we know that we can't change what other people do, but we know we can change our attitude. And that's what we're submitting to you. It's in Jesus' name that we make this commitment.
Amen.